What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom, honored to be here, and very appreciative of you being here. Whether you're listening in Poughkeepsie, or at CPT Ain't Afraid of Me, or whether you're listening in Michigan, or our friends in Seattle. Now, folks who have honored us with their presence on days when I have been here know that I like to talk about democracy as a first principle. To reframe the political debate as not merely right versus left, not even merely business versus labor, uh, not even merely ownership versus working, or environment versus other stuff, but democracy versus opponents to democracy. People who are trying to erode the idea that we should decide together how things work. We have a guest. His name is David. He wrote a book. Alt America. He has made the case that in fact we have dug ourselves a really deep hole and that we need to dig ourselves out of it. He agrees essentially that we are facing forces that are opposed to democracy and that is one of the things that has changed about the political debate. Joining us right now, David Nauert, thanks for being here. The way sure. I introduced the conversation is we've been talking about democracy as a first principle. And mm -hmm. you have made the case in your book, in very recently an article in the Gar interview in The Guardian, that there is, in fact, an assault on democracy. Let's start out by you making that case. Well, I, I don't think it's very hard to make a case that the alt-right is fundamentally an attack on democracy because it's really hostile to democracy in pretty much every shape, form, and fashion. It's about they want to replace democracy with authoritarian rule, and they see Donald Trump as their means to that that method. You know, um, and you know a lot of it is about uh, displacing democracy, ending uh, democratic rule. So, but make, make that just, spend just a little, spend a, David, if you would spend a little time making that case rather than just assuming it a priori or that we all kind of agree. Oh yeah, the alt right sucks and they want to get rid of democracy. What are the what are the best examples to use to prove that? If people are around their own water cooler, their own sink, and wanting to make that case. Sure. Well, 
so one thing there is uh, an alert hostility to the voting rights of uh, Latinos and uh, non-whites, which is a, a lot of why you hear the constant complaining, or, you know, the, the agitation claiming that um, people are fraudulently voting. That's what the whole voter fraud uh, accusations are about, is about claiming that, that non-whites are voting in larger numbers. And we actually see the, the anti-democratic impulse uh, coming through as actual policy, actual Republican policy uh, that comes out as you know, vote suppression efforts in numerous states, including Georgia and North Carolina and Virginia. Um, and these are places where we've actually seen vote suppression at work. And um, it's actually had a pretty profound effect on the, the national political scene, because I think that um, vote suppression had a key role in the 2016 election outcome. So I want to stay in the role of a uh, uh, devil's advocate, although it's fair to say the devil's doing fine. Uh, but yeah. the uh, but but what if what if I were to say no? It's not that it's not that blank the Republican Party, the right wing, the alt right, the racist nationalists. It's not that they're against democracy. They're for a different kind of democracy. Democracy that uh, respects the firearm, that, ref- that that honors private property, uh, that tries to protect wants to protect the unborn child, that wants to give people a chance to get rich and have their money not taken, that respects sure. the nuclear family, that respects the uh, that, that wants to protect against threats to American values, that thinks citizenship is important and it ought to mean something, and you have to do something to earn it, and not just to come across a border. That, that those things are essential elements of democracy rather than assaults on democracy. How would you respond? Well, I don't think anybody who is involved in immigration uh, questions the aspect of citizenship. What they do question is uh, the attempt to actually deprive people who have become citizens of that citizenship and uh, people who are born citizens of their actual right to vote. So um, a lot of the black suppression, uh, uh, black vote suppression, for instance, is actually directed at people who are not even immigrants at all, uh, but are just black people. And so, but it's also, it's, there are a lot of efforts to, uh, a lot of attempts to deprive um, people of having their, their own voice in society, and this includes uh, LGBT people, and it includes people of religious minorities. We've seen, for instance, um, a lot of people claiming that Muslims shouldn't even have the right to hold office, and that they shouldn't have the right to vote. Uh, we've seen people claiming, you know, a lot, I mean, and this is all coming up out of the Republican Party. But it's also coming out of the alt-right, and it's really being driven in many regards by this, this agitation, the really loud agitation um, from the radical right. And if I were to make the other case that, well, the alt-right, the, the racist nationalist fringe is just that. It's a fringe. It's not... It, it, it is makes interesting copy. It's a fun way, a, a compelling way uh, to criticize the current president. But we shouldn't overstate its influence in the American polity. What would be your response? Well, uh, it's true that we actually do have a lot of difficulty getting a handle on the numbers of people who are involved in the alt-right. Um, I, I think our best 
sort of guesstimate is uh, that we get from looking at internet traffic numbers, where uh, participation levels are just extraordinarily high, you know, daily visitation rates in, in the hundreds of thousands. And um, and that's, that's very troubling. And, and then we see it also spreading into the streets. Uh, we saw it in Charlottesville, out here on the West Coast. We've seen it at, uh, you know, at these demonstrations in Portland and Seattle and Berkeley um, that I've been covering. And, uh, you know, the folks like these street fighting games, like the Proud Boys showing up and uh, trying to create fights. But... Um, it's also important to understand that that the influence uh, that that these uh, radical right that the radical right has goes well beyond its numbers. And and one of the ways I like to try to explain that people when we talk about hate crime, um, if we when you look at hate crime participation, the perpetrators of hate crimes, the vast majority of them are not actual members of the hate groups. In fact, only about 8 to 10 percent of all hate crimes are actually caused by people, you know, perpetrated by people who are members of hate groups. But well over 80 percent of all hate crimes We're, we're, ta we're talking to David Nywert. You're listening to Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. Uh, David, we cut on you for a second, but finish your answer. So we see, we see with hate crimes that that even though very few of the people who actually commit them are actually members of the hate groups, they're all picking up on the rhetoric and ideas of hate groups in committing these acts. And I think that's true very much of what we've been seeing in America. Uh, think of all these, uh, these videos that have been popping up of people who are, um, are yelling and, and saying foul things to... Uh, minorities, and that's not just because everybody has a phone now that this is happening. In fact, in the first month after Donald Trump's election, we saw over a hate, a thousand hate incidents, uh, and which is just an extraordinarily extraordinary escalation. And I went through the data that the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, collected on that, and uh, nearly half of those incidents included people using either. Trump's name, or his rhetoric, or um, uh, something associated that makes it clear that they see themselves as being acting on behalf of Trump. And David, maybe you maybe you started to answer this question, but the uh, but what's changed? If you're going to tell a lot of people in the country, including a lot of people of color in this country, that oh, there are racists in the United States of America, they, yeah, that's not news. It uh, it could be upsetting. It'd be something to fight against. But is it is it New. What's changed? Well, what's changed is that um, it's happened on it's happening on the internet, um, and they're they're recruiting. They're no longer recruiting uh, older middle aged men who look backward to uh, a halcyon golden era, as we saw with you know the militias in the nineties, and and has been the case with most white nationalists and white supremacist groups throughout history. The alt right is actually recruiting young white males. And they're do, doing so using the internet, and it's very sophisticated appeals. It's very it, these are appeals that are geared towards young men. It's not backward looking at all. It's instead about building a new future for white men. 
Yeah, so and, they, they have the um, new recruiting tools and now targets to, ha to have replacement smokers. What is yeah. the, uh, what would you argue are the conditions under which that is, is that again made possible only because of new technology or anything else that we should understand are the roots of the growth of the, of the racist nationalists? Well, there are a couple of things that are causing it. One is that, um, I mean, yeah, some of it is actually the fact that it is taking place on the Internet. The Internet um, gives us the feel that, you know, makes us feel like we're interacting with other people. We're actually just interacting with bits on a screen. And so dehumanization becomes very, very simple on the Internet. It's a very common thing. That's why we have so many dis misunderstandings on the internet, and because you know you're not actually talking. No, to I get, I get that. I'm a, and and and, then, and I think. So, the, so, but, but what else? What what else helps has helped fuel this? Well, there is that. As some of it has to do with uh, you know, obviously the conditions on the ground have changed a lot. But there is a great deal more immigration these days, mm -hmm. and people are seeing changes in demographics. One of the changes that definitely um, uh, we saw associated with uh, people likely to vote for Trump was um, the, the, a lot of the, the reception to Trump was in places that were previously um, sort of mono-white areas, uh, pre, you know, rural areas that were all white, suddenly had, been, um, had seen their demographics change dramatically because of the influx of Latino workers. And these were areas that it turned out uh, were very likely to vote for Trump. You say um, that there's been a you say there's been a deep hole that has been dug. You're quoted as saying we've dug a deep hole. How do we dig ourselves out? Um, I think we need to understand that democracy is at risk. Um, that uh, that it's not a joke. I mean, I really think Americans have kind of um, taken their democracy for granted in many regards over the past few years. And, uh, um, and I think, you know, it's time to wake up. So I, I think some of it just has to do with waking up and recognizing that, you know, democracy is under attack, um, that there are elements that want to see it destroyed, that want to uh, replace democracy with authoritarianism. And we're already seeing a rise in authoritarianism all around the world. You know, you can go to the Philippines and Myanmar, you can look in Russia, you can look in Hungary and Turkey, um, and see that the tide of authoritarianism is rising everywhere. Yeah. And I don't think, and I think we need to be aware that um, democracies do die, and our democracy could die as well. I mean, we like to think that, that American democracy can never die, but I hate to tell people the truth is that it can. We got about 30 seconds. Do you have a favorite reason why, or at least favorite, most important reason, why democracy is being taken more for granted? I have my own, but I'm interested in yours. Well, I think, honestly, um, we have um, become very materialistic. Uh, and I honestly uh, think that a revival of spiritual values and communitarianism um, is really needed. And I think actually that there is an appetite for it, particularly among young people. I'm really encouraged by 
um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the, the people, uh, the young people that I see surrounding her and their idealism and their hope. And I think that that's where that's the future of America right there. David Nauert, thank you so much for joining us. What do you want to plug? Anything that uh, anything that's going on people should know about as we go to break? <laughs> Um, just, yeah, if you could uh, plug my book, uh, Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, um, I, I would appreciate it because... Well plugged. I think it's an important book. So. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. Hey, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is The Tom Hartman Show. Thanks for being with us. How do we get into this mess? If we agree, if journalists like David and I would agree that there is a deep and broad assault on democracy, how come? Always there? Just a little more obvious now? Uh, maybe it's just overstated? If it's not overstated, what's undergirding it? What's caused it? What are we going to do about it? It is a one-year anniversary of the Parkland murders. I did not say shooting. I said murders. We've got on the line right now Victoria from Upland, California. Hello, Victoria. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I'll be short. And I just wanted to give you my thoughts about why we're in this hole. I believe it's because industry and media have done such a great job in promoting individualism and, you know, consumerism. And no one's really promoting the common goods of the people for the people. And so we all, who's been affected um, up until now, has been usually suppressed minority groups. And when they were voicing their grievances, we were also happy to kind of look away when they were being suppressed by police brutality or, or, you know, other forces of our government because it didn't affect us. But now that the socioeconomic um, standards of the white males have changed and they've kind of joined the ranks of the um, normally suppressed people, we didn't even realize we were losing our democratic rights because at the time we didn't need to voice our opinions or voice our grievances. It wasn't affecting us. Now that it is affecting the white man, and they're finding out that, um, wait a minute, I'm not allowed to speak up, and because I'm going to be, for some reason, um, suppressed by my local authorities. Now, hence, we have these fringe groups, and I think it's a problem that we have fringe groups, not because we have them, we've always had them, but because now they've kind of captured the American political system, because the fringe groups have become more sophisticated, where they've changed their, you know, beer bellies and um, undershirts for suits and ties. They've discovered the value of education and they've kind of 
infiltrated all kinds of uh, branches of the government and other you know pillars of society. Our law firms are filled with them. Our police stations are filled with them. And honestly, it's only happening because we just, for some reason, as white society, can't fathom the fact that the system is broken. And so instead of looking and seeing what's wrong with the system and the condition we're in, we're kind of scapegoating minorities, blacks, Mexicans, Asians, I don't know, whatever, LGBT community. It's because it's so much easier to wrap your head around the other for the condition you're in rather than the actual system that's created the condition because that system has worked for mostly the white male for so long it's just it's a hard pill to swallow and victoria if you and, were gonna yeah. if you were and maybe this puts you on the spot too much but if you were gonna do something about it what would be your favorite thing and maybe you know vote or what I you know think, but you go ahead well i honestly think we need to first of all uh, take money out of politics and make it a playing field for everyone and i honestly think since the airwaves belong to the people they're supposed to belong to the people. I honestly believe every station on the television, every station on the radio must, without any choice, give hours. I mean, they need to give two hours, four hours, whatever hours we decide as a collective of people. But once we start talking to one another and realizing we all have the basic needs as human beings, whether you're American or not, whether you're an immigrant or not, we kind of will, I think, you know, start sowing the bonds of humanity. And we just need to come back to really just community you can't even go to a city hall Understood. and ask for space because it's four hundred dollars an hour i mean we even though we own on paper our common goods we're supposed to own the airwaves we have you no know, npr doesn't do it it's supposed to be you know uh, public broadcasting we just don't have the airwaves and they're supposed to be ours it's why we do this victoria and thank you so much for calling in and heard you there's a bunch of stuff in there including that there's been a lot of focus a lot of glorification of individuals and less glorification less discussion less highlighting of how we're stronger together than we are apart and also the transformation where you said sort of the the, the beer belly white man is now there are many more of them in a similar economic circumstance to people of color and we haven't yet come to grips with or some people haven't yet come to grips with what all that's going to mean culturally one year ago parkland shooting a group of students in the aftermath seized the attention of the nation saying never again well there has been again joining us now friend of the show igor volsky to talk about what we've learned in that year and what we might have to look ahead igor thanks for being here what have we learned this past year well, we learned that when people organize and when people push and demand for change, they can have a big, big difference. Uh, I'm not just talking about the results of the midterm elections that pushed dozens of NRA-backed lawmakers out of office. But we're also in a place where uh, at least 40 companies have broken ties with the NRA over this past year. Uh, we're also in a place where uh, you have young people for the first time saying that gun safety uh, is the number one issue they're going to vote for and they're going to vote on. It's the, the top concern for them. Yeah, pause um, there for a second, Igor. Is there, I mean, for a long time, the the dyna political dynamic, setting aside money for a minute, uh, but the political dynamic was a majority of the people would be in favor of, say, universal background checks, uh, but they were not 
but they did not value that more highly than than they valued other political issues. Whereas the NRA voter, that there there were lots of bullet voters and pun intended, uh, one issue voters. How, in terms of the people who say this is my top issue, have you looked comparatively about where that you know who has more, or relatively speaking, if, if it's still many more pro-gun, uh, single-issue voters by what ratio that they are in the majority, or you know they outnumber single-issue uh, gun safety voters? Well, I haven't seen new polling on the single-issue question, but you're absolutely right that historically speaking, right, you had gun owners who had an entire identity around what it meant to be a gun owner, that they were far more passionate about the issue, both in the voting booth, but also in the way they gave money to organizations they supported. That is certainly changing. I I don't have a number for you, but I think it's certainly changing because when you look at what young people care about, when you look at the general population, support is up, not just for background checks, as you mentioned, but also for bolder reforms, things like gun licensing, which is very popular for with young people, things like gun buybacks, the general idea that we need to build a future with fewer guns, that we have too many guns, right? That being as the, the kind of the top goal of, uh, of everything we're doing and the long-term goal that we're building towards. All of that uh, is significantly increasing, and at the same time, you have the NRA, A, losing revenue, B, spending less in political elections than they had in the past, uh, and D, facing trend lines that are really, really dangerous for them, at least, right? Because we have fewer and fewer people owning guns. They just own more guns. That's a problem in and of itself. Um, but also, you, know, you certainly look at younger generations, uh, and hunting is really no longer a recreational sport. Uh, young people uh, and uh, others really have little interest in guns. So all of this says that on this issue, we're moving in the right direction. The question is, how quickly can we get there towards a world with fewer guns, and how many lives can we save in the process? What policy accomplishments have happened? Do you have a quick litany of things that have happened at this, let's say maybe the state level or, or heck at the federal level since Parkland in the past year? And, and I know the list is not as long as you'd like it to be, but what are some things that have happened? Well, significantly on the federal level, you saw just yesterday the House Judiciary Committee pass a universal background check bill out of committee. It's going to move to the House floor. That's significant, and that's a good first step towards building a future with fewer guns. Will that get a hearing? Will that get a hearing in the Senate? Will that get a floor vote in the Senate? It's going to be up to Mitch McConnell. Uh, That's that's why I asked my question. Yeah, exactly. You know, I... um, uh, I, I don't know. Don't know. Okay. I think that given the fact that he's up for re-election, I think it complicates things. Yeah. So that's on the federal level. On the state level, we've seen tremendous progress. 67 bills have become law since Parkland in this past year. Most of them deal with what's called an emergency risk protection order, which allows an individual to petition a judge uh, to take guns away from a person in crisis for a temporary period of time. Those laws have already saved lives. And it's great to see them uh, kind of expanding around the country. Where are we falling short? Well, we're falling short by not 
taking the same kind of bold approach on guns as we do on other issues. So, you know, progressives are now talking about a Green New Deal. They're talking about single-payer health care. They're talking about uh, closing uh, and, tr- and, and shrinking the, the income inequality gap through taxes on millionaires and multimillionaires. But when it comes to guns, we still don't have that kind of big, bold goal. That's a great so, point. Yeah, we talk about incremental steps, right? Background checks and assault weapons. All of these things are important tools, but what's the organizing principle? And so a lot of what I do is define that organizing big, bold principle as fewer guns. Uh, And the reason for that is because you look at all the research domestically, internationally, it all shows without a doubt where there are more guns, there are more gun deaths. And to really deal with that problem, we have to be upfront with what we want. We want a future with fewer guns and where guns are harder to get. And I think all of our lawmakers and all of our politicians who are aspiring for higher office uh, can, 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 can really, um, you know, I encourage them to, to adopt that kind of approach um, uh, because, uh, hey, you know, this is a time when folks are talking about big, bold solutions. They need to apply the same kind of logic to guns as well. If we thought about our choice of big picture policy slogans uh, on three vectors, maybe I'm missing some, but on three vectors. One, that it would really make an impact, that it would be effective. Two, that it's doable, that we'd actually have a a chance to do the thing that would make that impact. And three, that it's inspiring, right? Healthcare for everybody. It's like, oh, I'm one of everybody. I could get some healthcare. That's cool. And we know it would actually have uh, impact on lots of people. And the question is how doable it is. At least it's two out of the three. And then the argument becomes around that third thing. For your fewer guns, where do you think it scores on those three? Or which do you like, you know, which motivates it? Is it because you find it inspiring? Is you think it's the most doable? Or you think it has, it would have the biggest impact if it were done? You've been at least making the case around impact. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the impact is huge. And, and we know this from experiences in the states that have tougher gun laws, certainly internationally. I think, look, in terms of slogan, is it inspiring? I think it is. Can people brainstorm other bold slogans around this? Sure. <laughs> but I talk about it in terms of fewer guns mean safer communities, mean safer movie theaters, safer churches, safer schools. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, and ultimately, that's what we are all invested in, in building. Yeah. And, and I think it, I hadn't thought enough about this. In fact, I had there's a really helpful insight that you offered that identifying that uh, that bold line, that bold uh, underlying principle that people can organize around, is, that's some work still doing. The thing I do like, you know, speaking for myself, what I do like about it is that uh, that by process elimination, I'm thinking of the others like gun safety or gun control or what. Uh, each of those, well, maybe all I have to do is turn my turn my uh, my safety on and put my gun in a lock, lockbox, and maybe that doesn't have anything to do with making sure my church or making sure the movie theater is safe. But Igor, where can people find out more? GunsDownAmerica.org for more information. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Show.
My friends at X-Chair are at it again, constantly tinkering to make an already superior product even better so you can work in even more comfort and be that much more productive. Now you can enhance your X-Chair's performance and protect your floors with incredible X-Wheel blade casters. These urethane wheels are driven by butter smooth, whisper quiet ball bearings and are built to last. As if the X-Chair isn't comfortable enough, now you can add a set of X-Wheels and take your performance to the next level. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as $30 a month. Seriously, for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee, you can take your comfort and productivity into the stratosphere by getting yourself an X-Chair. X-Chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, xchairtom.com. So what the heck are we going to do? What are going to be the key priorities in the coming presidential election, in coming local initiatives? If we're going to get around and galvanize around a handful of, and why a handful? Well, because we can remember a handful. We need to do more than a handful of things, but we could really galvanize around a handful of things. And if one of those parts of the handful of stuff we were going to galvanize around was a strategic initiative that we might call a Green New Deal to address simultaneously, at least in some measures, the threat to the climate and climate catastrophe and the challenge of wealth inequality, particularly along racial and also generational lines, as well as figuring out the kind of economic prosperity that doesn't bankrupt us environmentally or morally over time, what ought that look like? On the air right now, we have economics professor and author Noah Smith, no relation. Noah, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. I've read a few things you've written. One was you whacking the, for want of a better uh, phrase, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Green New Deal plan. Another was you proposing your own ideas of what you thought maybe is, I don't know if you use the word more affordable or sensible or what adjective you use, but stuff that you would support. And I sort of wanted to break this conversation down in three parts. One, what's the stuff about the Green New Deal that you hate? What's the stuff you like? And what's your own stuff? And I figure we can start wherever you want. You want to start with stuff you hate, stuff you like, or your own stuff? Well, let's start with stuff I hate. Go there. All right. So... The Green New Deal's biggest problem is, uh, well, it has two big problems. First problem is that it, um, it doesn't have any taxes. And it, if you looked at this, uh, this FAQ they posted online and then yanked and then claimed it wasn't real and then later sort of admitted it was real after all, they said that basically they're going to pay for the whole thing with massive deficits. And you say, oh, well, you know, Trump pays for tax cuts with deficits and we have deficits all the time. But if you look at the scale of these deficits, it's, uh, you know, about 35 times the size of what the Trump tax cuts gave us. So it's quite a lot. And that's, that's a minimum estimate. That's my, my minimum estimate. It could be more than 35 times. All right. So that's go ahead. Keep going. And you've got to worry that that, that isn't going to wreck our economy. Um, at the same time, it has, like, a lot of permanent new entitlements, like a federal, like a good job guaranteed for everyone by the federal government forever. Uh, is probably not a good idea. Uh, you know, universal basic income, economic security for those, quote-unquote, unwilling to work, mm, probably not. Uh, a guarantee of affordable housing for all. I mean, that sounds good, but how are you going to do that? So there's a number of things in here that could easily break the bank, 
paid for by deficits, and it's just sort of a scary thing. The second thing I hate, uh, and you know, I'm just dissatisfied with. Let's not say. No, I like. I think hate's funnier. Keep going. All right, all right. Second thing I hate is that the plan overwhelmingly concentrates on reducing United States carbon emissions, whereas we're only one seventh of global carbon emissions. We're only 14 percent, and that that number is shrinking every year while everyone else's emissions are going up. Um, And so. Uh, basically, you know, reducing our own emissions in this hope that like other countries will take our good moral example and that will save the world is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big stretch. So I'd like to focus on things that will actually help the rest of the world decarbonize because that's where most of the emissions are actually coming from. I'll respond quickly to two of them, then I want to go to the stuff that you like. And I heard basically two critiques on the context or the elements of the plan, uh, at least. One was, well, it doesn't say it's going to how to pay for it. Uh, and it'll be really, really expensive. On the not showing the cost, I mean, I don't know, as a thinking from a marketer's perspective, when you go to the BMW dealership, the BMW ad doesn't start out with the cost of the BMW. It starts out with the value. It starts out with what's needed. It starts aspirational, and then it gets to cost. Your concern is what? That people get excited about it and then get disillusioned when they realize uh, that it can't get that it can't get past? What, what do you see as the harm of saying, hey, no, we need to think at a scale that's as big as the problem, even though we write, don't right now have the revenue to uh, that is identified or earmarked to address the problem at the scale that's as big as the problem uh why is that why is that a bad thing so i mean the bad thing is if we actually do it you know i mean i I have trouble thinking this 12-dimensional chess of complicated like political move and counter move and shifting the overton window and all that stuff people talk about i think what would be good if we actually did it and if we did that green new deal tomorrow if we did all those things tomorrow which I'm sure its proponents would like. I'm not saying it would wreck our economy, but it would have a risk of wrecking our economy, pose big risks, while not doing a hell of a lot to combat actual climate change. And so that's sort of the worst of both worlds right there. And, and then my other, my other is, well, I can understand why somebody was trying to lobby, essentially put out that at that timing. I mean, I'm, if I'm thinking as their strategist, what I'm thinking is you put that out to help frame the debate in the coming presidential election. And they want, hey, go big and make sure you focus on things you can do as president. And it's also interesting to me, though, if you want to do things you can do, what are things you can do globally if you're, say, a member of Congress? I think globally, if you're a member of Congress, I mean, you know, ultimately the policies that we do have to affect the calculus for all these other countries where the majority of emissions are actually being produced uh, and all the emissions increase is happening. We have to affect their incentives. You know, we can't just yell at them, hey, get rid of your carbon, even though you're still poor. We've got to create and give them the technologies that allow them to decarbonize their own economies and get rich without, you know, uh, yeah, while still getting rich, while not wrecking their, their we're economy. Us- we're using a lot more carbon than than any of those countries with less technology. And, the, and, and we were the ones holding up the Paris Climate Accords, not like, you know, Namibia. Well, first of all, both those things are in large part wrong because, number one, we produce more per capita. But, you know, little countries like Qatar produce like a lot more per capita than us. The point is per capita isn't what kills the climate. Total carbon emissions are what kills the climate. And that's why this is a much thornier problem than just saying, OK, let's find the people who are producing more than their fair share and have them cut back. That's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut the mustard. It's not going to get the job done. We've got to actually reduce total carbon emissions, and that's a much harder problem because you have all these poor countries who that produce the bulk, you know, like six sevenths and rising of actual total carbon emissions. We've got to, you know, figure out a way. We've got to help these these guys 
decarbonize their economies while also getting rich. Otherwise, they won't do it because they're, you know, India is not refuses to stay poor. But India and China are a big deal. Yeah. But I think we should not uh, understate the importance of the American leadership role and and our failure to lead on this. I mean, to say, hey, we should we should do way more stuff in this country is not. Uh, too often, I think the response of, no, no, we should do things in other countries is a cop-out of what we should be doing here. Well, you're right. A lot of people use this as a cop-out, and it's frustrating because a lot of people who want to do nothing about climate change use this as an excuse to do nothing. I want to use it as an excuse to do more instead of less. So you let's know? talk about that more. Let's talk about the things yeah. where you think would be the highest leverage stuff that, that could inform, again, the presidential debate early on, which could help frame what's happening. Because I also, and, and one, one minor quibble I would have with your piece, is I don't think of a Green New Deal as something that should just be done by the federal government, right? I think it should, that we should set an aspiration and then figure out what we can do locally. Can you stick around? Uh, can you stick around for a minute to continue the conversation? Yep, absolutely. All right, we'll be right back. We got Noah Smith. I'm Jefferson Smith. To my knowledge, we're not related. But we're getting along fine, I think. I think so. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. We'll be right back. Cousin. (laughs) This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. It's by Vince Houghton. This is from the introduction. This is a book about desperation. That word has been so overused and misused that it's lost much of its impact. Too many stories about some local sports team desperate for a win or some housewives desperate for whatever that show is about. These pretenders have trivialized a word designed to be used only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. It should be a powerful word reserved for the urgent and overwhelming feeling that one's life is at risk. It's for the truly existential threats, another misused word, to one's country, one's family, one's friends, or one's livelihood. To feel desperate is to believe there are no good options, that everything that has been tried or could be tried is destined for failure. Desperation leads us to consider ideas that would have been unfathomable under normal circumstances, because desperate people make desperate decisions. This is also a book about innovation. Creative thinking about how things work and the possibilities of how things could work has been the catalyst for the astonishingly dynamic technological transformation of the past hundred years. From the advent of lighter-than-air flight to hypersonic aircraft, from bolt-action rifles to electromagnetic railguns, from ENIAC to quantum computing, from one poor freezing soldier in a trench listening to intercepted wireless messages to the NSA's supercomputers collecting the metadata of billions Brilliant people with innovative ideas continue to shape our world and do it exponentially faster than the generations that came before. But when innovation and desperation meet, trouble will usually follow. If necessity is the mother of invention, desperation is the drunk uncle. The guy who only calls twice a year at 3 a.m. on your birthday with the greatest idea anyone has ever had. No matter how hard you argue against the logic of his narrative, no matter how many flaws you find in his reasoning, he's resolute. This will work. It has to. He's a desperate man. Every so often, we're surprised when one of these ideas actually pans out. The U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, some of the most innovative aircraft ever designed, were the result of American desperation to see inside the Soviet Union. Nuclear power, computers, the Internet, modern textiles, personal encryption, even the process of how some of our food is grown, were born out of the nation's desperate fear to keep pace with an imposing rival. Much of that history has been written before. 
Countless books have been published about the remarkable and successful technology developed over the last century by governments for national security needs. This is not one of them. Most history books are full of stories that happened. This is a history book full of stories behind things that didn't happen. Here we'll take an expansive look at projects, missions, operations, and technology that were seriously considered but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, or even certifiably insane. Others were canceled mostly because they were overtaken by events. The atomic bomb worked, the war ended, the plans were captured, other technology superseded. Generally, history books use events of the past to make powerful arguments about historical actors' motivations, personalities, and states of mind, and rightfully so. This is part of what history books are supposed to do. But I contend that the evaluation of historical events is not enough. It can be just as important to investigate policies, decisions, and technologies that were considered at the highest levels, but then nixed for a variety of reasons. The intent of historical actors can be, and I argue is, far more instructive and illuminating than focusing entirely on the outcome of their policies. Outcome history is the traditional way of viewing historical events, but it leaves much to be desired. It has severe limitations, primarily because its lessons are predicated on things that can't be accurately quantified. Fate, luck, misfortune, whatever you want to call it. If the D-Day invasion in Normandy had failed because of a freak weather system, or a lucky shot from a German soldier that took out a key American leader on the beach, or any number of other misfortunate scenarios, would we think any less of Eisenhower's plan? Using outcome-based history, the answer is yes. And therein lies the problem. Intent can be a very powerful tool for historians. So leave your historical hindsight at the door. Ignore the fact that these policies, technologies, programs, and missions were scrapped before they became real. To get the most out of this book, you should take the advice of Master Yoda. You must unlearn what you have learned. The outcomes of the programs are inconsequential to the overall message of the narrative. Outcome really doesn't matter here at all. That's why this book scorns the counterfactual, the game of what if, vilifies it, mocks it mercilessly. The counterfactual is our enemy. We will not what if ourselves until we are blue in our faces trying to rewrite history into a hodgepodge of ahistorical nonsense. Deep breath. I might have taken that a little too far. Counterfactuals can be a lot of fun when you're hanging out with your friends and family debating the what-ifs of the Kennedy assassination of the Civil War, the Protestant Reformation, or the Star Wars prequels, or the 1986 World Series. I forgive you, Bill Buckner, mostly. I'd be happy to join you all one day for a vigorous debate on historical counterfactuals, perhaps over your favorite adult beverage or bottle of Yoohoo, but they have no place here. Instead, all of these stories should have you saying, what were they thinking? The best way to approach this book is with an open mind toward the decision makers and how they were approaching the problems facing them. In almost every case, those in power were desperate to do something, anything, to combat their adversaries. Thus, what were they thinking is exactly correct, except I hope you'll be willing to truly embrace the question and not just see it as the dismissive aside or a hasty pejorative. Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes, our book for the day. What most people don't realize about working in radio is that it's hungry work. I mean it. And you know cooking can seem like a chore. But that's where HelloFresh comes in. They take the guesswork out of cooking by offering a wide-ranging menu with classics that we know and love like the gorgeous greens farro bowl or the delicious grilled sriracha glazed salmon to recipes you might not be as familiar with courtesy of their gourmet menu. 
Get fresh and affordable, high-quality ingredients delivered right to your doorstep, pre-measured. So all you have to do is follow the recipe. It could not be easier. That's what makes Hello Fresh America's number one meal kit. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's HelloFresh.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Get a total of $60 off. That's $20 off your first three boxes. Visit HelloFresh.com slash Tom. That's HelloFresh.com slash T-H-O-M. HelloFresh.com slash Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. No, we were just getting to what are some of the stuff that you like? What are the, what are the elements of the Green New Deal that you think should be highlighted? Well, so the most important thing is this transition to zero carbon energy and building of green infrastructure, especially a new smart grid. That is going to be stuff that not only reduces our own carbon emissions a lot and fast, it's going to serve as a great example to other countries because it will show them, look, you too can, can do this smart grid. You know, you too can, can get off carbon-based electricity really fast. And so I think that is, that's my absolute favorite part. We absolutely need to do that. And the green jobs that that provides, um, you know, I don't want to do this permanent job guarantee, uh, you know, thing that they do. But then I do want to. Um, and how come? How come you don't like the, the? How come you like don't like the job guarantee? Because you think it's expensive, and you don't uh, want to get the money. You want to do what is necessary to get the money for, it, or you just think some people don't want to work. Why do you like a jobs guarantee? Well, the, the jobs guarantee basically. Um, First of all, it's going to outlast the uh, the sort of green infrastructure thing. So we're going to be left. We'll, we'll be like, okay, well that's done. What are we going to guarantee people jobs doing now? And so I think it's going to, you know, turn into you know sort of make work kind of stuff. And if we pay those the job guarantee jobs really well, it'll you know even pull people out of productive private sector work into stuff that we, you know, just sort of like make up and have people do. And I I don't think that's necessarily going to be a good uh, thing. It's going to lead to you know resentment because people will say, oh, you're just doing make work. And stuff like that. It'll also be extremely expensive, and you know maybe it, it's the kind of thing that would come in handy in like a big depression or recession like the one we just had, putting people to work. But in normal times, it's you know it could just pull people out of uh, better jobs and uh, you know more productive jobs, um, while costing the government a lot of money. And it's this permanent new entitlement, this permanent massive new expansion. No country, no other country has ever really done a job guarantee. Mm-hmm. We've had countries try to like, you know, directly provide government jobs. And unless you're in the middle of a, of a deep depression, that doesn't really tend to work very well. Um, it, the, the results are not particularly impressive uh, unless you're in the middle of a depression, like when we had the New Deal and, and Roosevelt put a bunch of unemployed people to work. Um, so, so some of the parts yeah. you like, you like the infrastructure stuff, doing a smart grid. I love it. Uh, yeah. you, you like, uh, you also talked about technology. Technology means what? Uh, incentive subsidies to private business. It means uh, funding ARPA uh, at, you know, to the level of the National Institute of Health. What, what's the, uh, say more about how, how you would fuel technology. Right. Well, so there's basically two things. There's two kinds of technology. There's technology that we, we don't know yet, and there's technology that we do know that we need to make cheaper. The stuff that we don't know yet, we need to, re- will, you know, where we basically need to develop, like, new ideas, like new inventions. That we have to do through ARPA. Um, that's, that's our, you know, energy research agency, and we, it, its budget is only now $300 million. The National Institutes of Health budget is $30 billion, 100 times more, so we need to 100x the ARPA budget. As for the stuff we already have, like solar power and batteries, we just need to like make it better, make it you know incrementally more efficient. For that, subsidies and mandates basically say everybody decarbonize your energy grid right now, switch to zero carbon sources, 
cars have to be electric cars, blah, blah, blah. That will help private businesses scale up. So that's part of the Green New Deal I really like and will help technology. I like the, the mandates for renewable electricity, for basically getting all our power from non-carbon producing sources. I like that, although I think we need to include nuclear in that and not decommission nuclear plants because that would just hamper us. Nobody likes nuclear waste, but, you know, let's keep the nuclear around until, you know, we can, until we can cheaply replace it. Um, and, uh, and so I like that, and I like, you know, the idea of basically mandating electric cars, saying internal combustion engine, you had your day, goodbye. Now it's time for everybody to have electric cars. I like both of those things. What about a big carbon tax? Love it. Love it. It's not in the Green New Deal at all, but I love it. And, and why do you think it tax? isn't in the, in the Green New Deal? You think it's because of the concern that it would most impact the people with the least? That's part of it. And the way you get rid of that is just by rebating it to poor people. So you, you, you tax carbon and you get just mail checks to poor people. Yeah. That completely takes away the, the impact on the poor people. And it makes it actually a redistributive policy instead of this, uh, you know, falling hard on the poor. And I think ultimately the reason they don't like a carbon tax is because it seems wonky, it seems neoliberal and technocratic, and it seems like it's a, a hallmark of the, the guys that the, the people writing this deal don't like. And that's a mistake because it's actually a pretty good policy. Yeah, in fact, if, if all that happened, if all that happened was a big carbon tax with everybody getting a check, and that's the only thing that happened, I think that it would do not only a bunch for wealth inequality, it would even be a baby step in, in or at least, if not a baby step, at least a nod in the direction of a UBI of universal basic, basic income, but would also start putting incentives for everybody to use less than they need in terms of carbon. What, what are other elements you hope get into the discussion of a Green New Deal? Um, so other things that we need in the discussion of the Green New Deal are number one, taxes, you know, how to pay for it. Yeah. Um, a bunch of international stuff. So there's a lot of internationally focused things we could do. So we could give, you know, complete free trade to any country that like makes decarbon, a big effort to decarbonize its economy. And we could put up trade barriers to countries that basically have very carbon intensive economies that burn tons and tons of carbon. And this uh, is and this is how you want to this is this is the lever you want to use or one of the levers you want to use to impact yeah. global. Recognize if we oh do it only in the United States and ain't enough, we need to get other people doing it else. How, doing it also. Exactly. How how yeah. else do we leverage uh, if we do leadership, so we do our own stuff, so we actually uh, demonstrate some virtue, and we use environmental standards, carbon standards on trade policy, What any other levers we can use to galvanize the world to work on this? Oh, yeah, a lot. So we can ban fossil fuel exports. We can say our coal, our oil are staying in the ground forever. They will never be burned. You will not have them. And that'll raise the scarcity of fossil fuels in the world and raise the price of coal and oil on, on global markets. Um, we can also, uh, we can um, subsidize exports of green technology. Uh, so, you know, so suppose that like Tesla is going to sell some, some batteries to, you know, other countries, we can actually pay them to do that, uh, you know, which helps them scale up and also helps other countries switch away from fossil fuels. Everyone gets we, a pony, yeah. Noah. I want everybody to get a pony instead everyone, of a car. Everyone gets a pony unless it's a carbon burning pony, in which case we hit you on the head with a bat. And that's basically what we have to do. Yeah. Noah Smith, where can people find out more about your stuff? Uh, people can read my stuff at Bloomberg. Thanks, Bloomberg man. Opinion. Appreciate right. you being here. Thank you. You can get the Tom Hartman soundtrack. Actually, I don't know if you can. The uh, I just like the idea of the Tom Hartman soundtrack. Because I like the songs, and I want to know if I can get the full versions. 
because I just start to dance and then it's time to like talk on the show. I never really get a good groove going. But if you get, if you, if you download the CD, if you get the vinyl, if you get the eight track, you can keep the dancing going. And you could even play it as a bed under our democracy talk and really get your groove on. We are right now getting our groove on. What am I doing? Talking to Bob Nay, Talk Mini News, talkmininews.com. Bob, what's your favorite song? Uh, let's see, maybe um, Highway to Hell. <laughs> speaking, spe speaking of which, what's happening in I Washington, D.C.? Why not, you know? What, what's happening in the country you want to talk about? Well, speaking of that topic, uh, let's go over to Warsaw, Poland, because there was a supposed conference which started out by us. It was a conference on Iran, and then it turned into a conference on the Middle East peace, security, economic development. And that was because a lot of our allies said we're not going to attend that conference, or people sent lower-level individuals to that conference, Jefferson, because they realized it was nothing but sort of a drumbeat by the Trump administration for a pre-war cursor to Iran. Now, the reason I say that, let me give the quote here, and I don't want to mess it up, but when Prime Minister Netanyahu arrived, he said on his Twitter account that an open meeting with representatives of leading Arab countries that are sitting down together with Israel in order to advance the common interests of war with Iran. Then he changed an hour later the Twitter account to say, advance the common interest of combating Iran. Mm. But he at first put war with Iran. Mm. And then after that, of course, Rudy Giuliani, not on behalf of the Trump administration, but obviously he is part of the Trump administration, one of their lawyers, as we know. He gave a speech, and he had the picture of Maryam Rajavi, who is married to Masood Rajavi, and they are head of the Mojahedin Kalk, known as MEK. And though, though that group were certified terrorists, they had uh, originally taken, uh, taken our hostages from the uh, embassy that we had in Iran at the time, in 1979, after the revolution. And um, they were a designated terrorist group until they were decertified uh, a few years ago. And he spoke on their behalf. Now, he actually was uh, paid by them around $150,000 at the time they were still a designated terrorist group, and he got away with that. Uh, so he's been on their payroll for quite a period of time. And there were a few hundred all uh, is all there were at that protest. Now, the reason I bring them up is because, you know, we relied on Ahmed Chalabi and others for fake, false information and lies, which led us into a war with Iraq. And now we're relying on the Mojahideen Kalk for the same types of information, which this administration, courtesy of John Bolton, National Security Agency, is absolutely, I believe, categorically, as many others do that analyze this in D.C., headed towards a potential war with Iran. So, you know, this was not a summit about Mideast and uh, a peace or economic prosperity. It was a summit that now the Trump administration, Jefferson, had to backtrack on because even our allies over there said, wait a minute, you know, you're going too far with this. It's all an attempt to get Europe out of the Iran nuclear deal. And if Europe gets out of the Iran nuclear deal, then, quote, there is nothing to stop Iran except military action. So I'm just warning as a precursor and analyzing this entire situation for a multitude of years. This administration is, is bound somehow to want to have some type of conflict, which might be kind of convenient in 2020, if you follow my drift. Yeah. And let me ask you, the, the word that was edited, do you think that was a 
you know, teleprompter, written word gaffe the way that uh, that uh, I think back to the Donald Trump line recently uh, saying that the greatest accomplishment was the abolition of civil rights. Uh, and, and they say, oh, no, no, we didn't mean abolition of civil rights. We meant abolition, comma, civil rights. Uh, and, and some say, well, that's that was a Freudian slip. And others say, no, no, it was just a slip slip. Do you take that as just a slip or do you think it belied something? It demonstrated a, a, a plan for war. Oh, I think it's a slip on purpose. You know, it's aimed. You know how things are, quote, leaked, and then the White House says, oh, you know, we don't know who did that when they themselves leaked it. Yeah. I think it was thrown out there to uh, to give that warning to Iran that they're willing to go to war. And, and it was one hour later that it was changed. Look, every prime minister, every president, every major leader, ha- they have staff people that watch for these types of, of mistakes. That was a mistake that was allowed to sit for one hour. And that's not just a mistake. It's saying we want to gather people up to have a war. And so I think it was done intentionally to send the bone-chilling message out there that that's what, uh, you know, a couple of people are headed to. And the main person, entity behind this is Mohammed bin Salman, the, uh, you know, king of Saudi Arabia, acting king at least. And uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is all behind this conference. Jared Kushner's there, who's close to Mohammed bin Salman. So you can start to put the dots together. Kushner's currying favor with uh, Saudi Arabia because they're all basically over there saying, you know, hey, we want to beat that drum, and that drum leads to war with Iran. And trying to talk Europe out of the, the nuclear deal, and if they did get out of it again, what's left to stop Iran? And then, then the argument would be, well, we have to stop it by war. All right. You want to keep talking on this, or you got another topic? No, I've got another topic. Go ahead. Of course, uh, the, the shutdown. And... Uh, the Senate will act on the shutdown because some of the senators are headed over to this conference and, you know, the jets will be fired up. The president won't stop the jets this time. So, as you know, the Jefferson, they'll be headed over to that conference. And, um, again, the president is going to say that part of the $1.375 will be used to build the wall. Senator Schumer made it clear today that's really not wall money. But, uh, you know, there's obviously two uh, some concessions. The uh, Democratic side won out uh, very big with the uh, Violence Against Women's Act because the Republicans, through Mitch McConnell, wanted to obviously keep that uh, redone until September, which would uh, not allow any major changes to be done to that measure. Bob so Nay, Talk Me News, TalkMeNews.com. Thank you so much for calling us. Thank you. Be well. I want to say thanks so much to all of our listeners. It is such an honor to do this. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy doesn't have that much of a chance. With you, we got a chance. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks, everybody. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 